Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLoma. Today, I'm joined by Blythe Crawford and Florence King, who are both doctoral candidates in war studies at King's College London and research fellows at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization. They are here with us today to talk about Chan culture and how it relates to far-right violence. Blythe and Florence, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, thanks. Excited to be here today. Great. I wanted to just start off with the big question, which is about Chan culture itself. So could you both talk to us about what is Chan culture and why is studying it important? Yeah. So basically Chan sites are a cluster of image board forums, um, each with their own sort of subsection of individual boards where users can talk to each other about a range of topics, usually general interest topics. Um, They really differ from mainstream social media, largely in the fact that they're almost entirely anonymous. You operate without a photo or a name, which is really unlike Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, where you're encouraged to really pour your personality into your social media, right? Uh, A lot of them have been created as a sort of antithesis to mainstream social media as well. Um, So they want to go against sort of big tech moderation or what they perceive that to be um, and be really countercultural in a way. A lot of them are sort of created in the image of BBS systems, which are, you know, ways um, that people used to communicate in the sort of early ages of the internet. And they kind of have their own culture in a way that mainstream social media platforms don't really have their own culture. Um, in terms of why they're so important to study, like, I guess that's something that we're going to talk about throughout the entire podcast, really. But chans like 4chan and 8chan, which are the largest sort of Western facing chans, really influence so much of social media culture. A lot of the memes that we all know today have come from 4chan and trickled down into mainstream social media. And in terms of studying extremism or far-right violence, they have a really ambivalent relationship to that in that they've always had um, instances of violence which have been linked to Chan cultures, even though a lot of what happens on Chan sites is not directly to do with politics or even violence, but they've been tied to um, school shootings and some instances of incel violence. And most recently, we saw this big string of far-right terrorism attacks being linked to HM before its closure, starting with um, the Christchurch shooting in 2019 um, by Brenton Tarrant, where he posted his manifesto and a live stream to HM. And that was emulated by a number of shooters who've been tied to various other Chan sites. So they represent a really sort of interesting facet of internet culture, which is becoming really influential in studies of online radicalization. Um, And I was just kind of adding on the back of that kind of why question, why is it so important? Um, Not only do we see this kind of specific connection to a number of far-right attacks, but it's also this general trivialization and glorification of violence that exists within these kind of online Chan cultures. Um, So what we were really trying to discern is how this works in relation to their visual culture, primarily through the memes, um, which clearly is such an important aspect here. Um, And in this regard, really trying to understand how they lower the barrier for participation into that kind of more extreme ideology that we find online. Thank you both for that that overview. And I thought it was really interesting, Blythe, what you said about how it's an an earlier form almost of the internet, right? Like these early publishing forums and message boards where you're anonymous and they crave that anonymity. But when we think about programs like, or platforms like Instagram or Facebook, you know, they want you to personalize and make it about you as much as possible. So it's a really interesting, you know, switch and in how the Chan boards operate. 
And Florence, I just wanted to ask and if you could continue with what you were discussing with memes and visual culture, how does that contribute to violence and serve the broader agenda of the far right, especially when you think about I like the phrase that you use of this lowered barrier to entry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the key findings that we found um, within our data set um, as part of this wider report is that a lot of the most prominent memes that we see deployed have real kind of malleable meanings, which means that violence may be promoted in really subtle ways and not necessarily that obvious to those who aren't you know, embedded within meme and chan culture itself. So, you know, popular memes that may at first seem really innocuous, um, you know, for example, a version of the Pepe the Frog meme um, may then be placed in a certain context, um, as some of our report goes into. And then it takes on a much um, maybe deeper meaning, often really connected to a more kind of bigoted, um, racist, misogynistic, etc. worldview. Um, so in that regard, memes are very important with regards to the visual aesthetic that they really ferment. Um, and what we saw is them becoming very kind of fundamental in cementing a certain kind of in-group status, um, which often really hides the true meaning of that meme to less familiar observers. Um, and when we talk about an in-group, um, particularly in Chan cultures, that's not to say that there's one specific organization or kind of tangible structure, but more this kind of coalescing of individuals and movements um, that really cluster around a variety of far-right ideologies and philosophies. Um, which makes it really tricky to kind of pin down in this, you know, particularly kind of nebulous in its nature. Yeah, I think just to build on that as well, um, there's something specific in the vehicle of a meme, um, which makes them so useful to Chan culture and to the far right, right more broadly, um, which is in, you know, it sounds kind of stupid to talk about memes as a tool of political ideology, right? But that's part of where their power really comes from. Um, in that it's sort of inherent deniability, in that um, you see a funny image and you can convey a really hateful concept, but at the same time, you can suggest that, you know, you're just messing around with the internet. It doesn't really mean anything serious. And to have that sort of ability to influence a slow creep of ideology through humor, that's a really useful tool for the far right to spread um, sort of hate into more mainstream audiences, starting with Chan culture and maybe spreading onto more mainstream social media as well. That's so fascinating. And, and would you both say, in your opinion, that the way that they're using memes, you know, one of the things that we talk about on Chan sites is in some ways they're organic, right? It's because of the anonymity, people just kind of post and things can take on a, a life of their own and there's no regulation. But do you see these, the generation of memes as part of a larger effort by the far right to sort of influence the mainstream, like you both have said, with memes having a lower barrier to entry, people think they're funny. Is that a tangible choice by the far right? Or is this just something that has organically come out of the culture of Chan sites? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's partly sort of preaching to the converted, you know, and sharing these um, funny images, as Florence was saying, does build an in-group that sort of happens quite organically and people communicate um, in a group that feel really comfortable with using memes as a vehicle for humor. But something that has always been part of Chan cultures and that we actually saw in our own ethnography as part of this project was people consciously choosing to do what they're calling meme campaigns, which is where um, they choose a target. In this case, it was something called Operation Pride Fall, where they targeted smaller companies who were endorsing Pride Month um, in the UK and the US. 
and sort of tried to target them on social media with memes which spread um, disinformation about the LGBT community and spreading hate through, you know, what they would call, you know, funny images. And so that is a really conscious choice to use memes as a tool to spread disinformation into the mainstream. So there is some awareness that a meme isn't entirely politically neutral. And how would you both categorize their relationship to the mainstream, both in terms of how chans differ from other social media sites, but also what are the users hoping to get out of being part of this community? So they have a really ambivalent relationship to the mainstream, basically. As I was saying sort of at the start, um, in a lot of ways, trans sites market themselves as an antithesis to mainstream social media and to mainstream culture in general. And they really want to exist as this countercultural space. And um, so they do lots of things to distance, them, distance themselves from Facebook and Twitter and sites like that in particular, and really mock users of um, these sites and mock, you know, conservative and um, liberal voters as well as just being normies or participating in normal culture, which they see as something really pointless and boring, basically. But there's also part of Chan culture, which is a real feeder into the mainstream, as we've been talking about, um, and it really influences mainstream culture. I think what people get out of this, in at least some small part, is this feeling of elitism and feeling that you have firstly, a distance from mainstream culture, but also a sort of superiority to it and the ability to influence it as well. And that, as Florence was talking about, is really important for creating an in-group and feeling part of something quite special. Yeah, and just to kind of add to that, um, you know, it kind of means the lessons that we learn from moderating or regulating mainstream social media um, really can't be easily applied to Chan culture just because they operate in such a different way, right? I mean, um, what we see is this entrenched anonymity, a real kind of lax approach to moderation um, and this very kind of hostile attitude towards, you know, so-called outsiders and normies, meaning that the objective of, you know, spending time on chans um, isn't necessarily to even engage with large audiences, um, which I guess has implications on the way which may, we may attempt to kind of engage with that culture or even moderate on it, um, which we can come into more detail later on. Fantastic. I mean, that's, that's such a helpful explanation, I think, for people, because in many cases, for people that aren't have never been on a Chan site, it seems as if it's kind of a, a nebulous, far off place, right? Like it's for chance, the dark web, right? Like it can feel very foreign to people who are not, who have never been on these sites, they don't understand how they're constructed. And it's really interesting, the point that both of you brought up about that it gives the users a sense of elitism, when the entire premise of how the platform is constructed is, you know, everybody's anonymous. You're just one part of this group. And so that's a really interesting contradiction. Yeah, I think it is really that sense of feeling part of something that seems cool, basically. And I think chans really build that um, sense of community. I think something that you were saying, Gusta, about sort of seeing 4chan and 8chan as these like horrible places on the dark web, I think we're seeing something really interesting with QAnon there, where, you know, the QAnon conspiracy started on 4chan, um, and now 8kun, which was formerly 8chan, is sort of the home of where these Q drops or updates from um, the sort of shady Q figure are coming from. Although a lot of people who are participating in the conspiracy theory are sort of saying to avoid 8chan at all costs and avoid 8kun because it's this horrible dark place where, you know, Nazis use the internet. 
um, and it's only really safe to engage with the conspiracy on mainstream social media. So we're seeing that while it's sort of seen as a really cool place to be for people who are really embedded in Chan culture, if you're not familiar with it, it does seem something kind of scary. And I think that people who are familiar with Chan culture like that they have that sort of reputation as the edgy kid on the internet. Influence, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about the challenges with how Chan culture works and how the actual platform of, of Chan sites makes it difficult to use traditional, or not traditional, but steps that social media companies have increasingly sought to rely on, like moderators or deplatforming. So are there any policy steps that could be productive to curb the potential for online radicalization on these chans? Um, and what role could deplatforming realistically play? Yeah, the deplatforming debate is really, really interesting when we think about chans. Um, you know, we've seen great examples of mainstream social media companies um, really making efforts to kind of get rid of bad actors or um, bad organizations and actually really stemming the flow of hate. Um, but it's it's just it's just very different world um, when we think about chans. And I think 8chan um, and its removal from the clear net is, is an interesting case study of what can actually happen in practice when a site gets taken down. Um, and in this instance, we saw the private sector really moving ahead to kind of pull the plug on its operations, um, Cloudflare being their service provider. So, you know, in the wake of that string of far-right attacks that happened in 2019, um, they stopped their ability to operate. And of course, 8chan went offline for a couple of months, um, but then came back in November 2019 under the guise of 8kun, um, which had the same owner. Um, and visually, the site was very similar, although actually, you know, almost a year into its operation, we do see some kind of differences in terms of the content and some of the sort of technical factors. But I think the point is that when one of these kind of sites gets taken down, we do see the flow of users moving to even more niche chans um, and also other kind of popular apps like Telegram and Discord. So it's relatively hard in these kind of more niche spaces to stop the overall flow. Um, and this idea that simply kind of deplatforming or attempting to engage in moderation doesn't necessarily easily apply. Um, and other things that we also observed is that we know that some chans are actually kind of preemptively seeking to um, retain their most popular boards by, you know, forging alliances with other chans, um, really preemptively against the removal of um, their operations on the clear net. Um, and in that case, even, you know, the ability to go to the dark net is still a possibility. So I think our kind of takeaways are that, you know, really engaging with chan culture um, should be treated with caution and not simply just replicating deplatforming lessons with mainstream social media, which, you know, in some instances have proven to be successful. Um, and it's just kind of understanding that awareness of, you know, what the content means, becoming really kind of, you know, conscious of, of the subtext behind um, what we find on chans and just aware that simply closing one space down will often have knock-on effects. Um, and you know the importance of kind of mapping where that flow goes. That's so that's helpful to draw that distinction because I, I think one of the the challenges when we talk about deplatforming, especially in the context of chan sites, is the process of deplatforming actually in some ways reinforces in the most devoted advocates to these far right ideologies, these chan cultures, that the threat against them is real, right? That they thrive on creating this culture of we're, we're being oppressed by the government, they're out to get us, and then deplatforming reinforces that in their mind and in some ways strengthens that, that small in-group that 
goes with them from each of these sites. So that's a it's a really helpful way of of looking at the problems of what happens when you deplatform them. Where do they go next? And then our challenge as researchers is trying to track them and track their users to these these different platforms that can be even more difficult to access. From your research, how have Chan sites responded to current events specifically like the Black Lives Matter movement beginning in the U.S. but is now really global global movement and the COVID-19 crisis? And what can we learn from this response? The the period of time that we were collecting data, you know, coincided with this, you know, extremely turbulent year. And it wasn't something we expected when we went into this project, you know, earlier on in January. So, of course, you know, COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter um, have really kind of increased, you know, the amount of time people have spent online and the promotion of um, specific conspiracy theories. Um, so I'll, I'll speak for the Black Lives Matter movement, where we really saw the deployment of memes targeted at black people in an attempt to dehumanize and really delegitimize their cause, um, in which, you know, we really saw these kind of very old racist tropes that um, held really offensive comparisons of black people um, to animals, you know, for example, implying they lack self-control um, you know, trying to associate them or perpetuate the myth of black people and um, particularly men with criminality. Um, and often these images juxtapose with, you know, the idea of white people as brave and strong. Um, and particularly in relation to George Floyd's death, um, we came across really graphic images that were, you know, amongst the most popular shared memes within our data set. Um, and actually these were sort of deemed too offensive to even share. Um, but what it really shows is this kind of casual and mocking approach to the death of a black person in which a certain subset of the community viewed black lives as disposable. Um, and really that kind of violence inflicted against them as something that was kind of comical and funny. Yeah, I think to build on that with coronavirus, we did see a really similar response, I think, uh, in that it took over a lot of discussion, a lot of the chance that we were looking at. And it became a real focus for disinformation and conspiracy theories um, and generally reveling in the chaos that coronavirus brought around the world. Um, I would say that there wasn't so much of a uniform response across Chan sites as there was a general clamoring and a reveling in panic and chaos. I think that's something that we can really learn from how chants have related to 2020 as a year as a whole, really is that um, the bigger the opportunity that they are given to, um, sorry, I'll say that again, in that they really take um, big political events as opportunities and they look at them as something to be capitalised upon to spread um, chaos and panic into the mainstream and they see them as almost a fun thing to be enjoyed, really, and it's that revelling in chaos which is so central to them. I think something else that we haven't touched on, but is really important to Chance, is that the response to both um, Black Lives Matter and coronavirus, both were really infused with anti-Semitism and conspiracy theories that often um, labeled Jews as, you know, the sort of orchestrators of evil. And I think that it's that sort of taking joy in panic and mocking people for being scared and that sort of level of anti-Semitism that were too big findings that we found from the data that we were looking at throughout 2020. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, this is really just a big finding that's one to watch because clearly the world is continuing to go on this kind of trajectory of instability, you know, tensions relating to upcoming US elections, 
you know, economic problems in you know, most countries in the world, um, continuing pandemic, and then these kind of racial tensions on the back of this um, means that it's a space that we have to continue to watch on chant cultures to see the ways in which users may be seeking to manipulate the instability to their own ends. One last thing that I wanted to ask you both is how do you actually conduct this research, right? Like what is the process that you created to, to track these memes? And then what key findings can you, can you share with us that we haven't already touched on from this study that you both have been working on? So this was like a really kind of mixed method approach, um, combining a data effort with a data scientist where we essentially kind of collected information across uh, various boards over a number of key Chan sites, um, specifically the sites with a poll, politically incorrect or equivalent board, um, as well as some of the weapons boards um, over several months. Um, and within that, we were able to determine the most popular memes and images that were shared on these Chan sites, as well as the reach between them, um, and then conducted ethnographic analysis on how these were contributing to or situating themselves within violent discourse. Um, and then alongside this, we also conducted a number of key interviews with um, experts from government, academia and the private sector, just to make sure we got a really good sense of kind of what was going on in Chan culture um, and how the kind of visuals and content were contributing to um, and promoting violence. Yeah. And just to touch on some of the key findings um, from our analysis, we found that there was sort of a difference between images that were shared on Chan's, which... Um, just looking at them, you could say were inherently hateful. There were some which, um, no matter how, whatever way you spin it, basically were just conveying hateful concepts. Whereas there were others, as Florence has touched upon already, which had more malleable meanings um, and really seemed quite innocuous when you first looked at them, but situated within um, context of other posts and in broader discussion, took on quite a hateful meaning. Um, we also found that there was a real difference between images that we saw um, that were popular within Chan sites themselves and between Chan sites, so the memes that we saw having the greatest spread between Chan platforms. And these really tended to be, I guess, longer memes, which contained at times pages and pages of text, so which sort of problematized what we were thinking of as a meme, as being you know, just an image or an image with a few words or a tagline underneath it. And we've sort of determined that sometimes images are used not just um, as pure images, but to convey really dense ideological concepts and at times to share really important texts with each other as well. So it's about um, looking beyond just memes as something funny or humorous, although that is a really important part of how they're used by the far right, but to really looking at them as a vehicle for ideological um, information as well. Well, thank you so much, Blythe and Florence, for joining us today and lending your expertise about Chan culture to, to really help us ground ourselves when we're hearing all of this mainstream conversation about Chan culture. I feel like I'm now more informed about what's going on on these boards. Where can our listeners read more from you, hear more from you, find out about this study, uh, whether that's on your academic platforms or, or social media? Yeah, so the study should be published soon. It was actually funded by the Center for Research um, and evidence on security threats, as known as CREST, um, which is an independent centre commissioned by the ESRC. So our larger report should be coming out via CREST, but we also have a kind of series of shorter outputs as well, um, which 
you'll be able to find um, on GNET. Um, and I also believe some coming out on Carl's own website as well. Um, so we'll kind of keep you looking out for that. And of course, our kind of Twitter platforms, mine being my name, which is at Florence Keen. And mine being my name, but backwards, which is Crawford Blythe. Thank you both so much for joining us today. And this has been another episode of Write Writing. See you all next time.